So here's the deal. Scripture teaches that God actively preserves his creation and works within it to accomplish his will. Two things we're going to try to establish early on before we jump into answering our question today. There's a lot that's packed into that statement that we're beginning with there, a lot wrapped up into that one sentence that we don't have a lot of time to unpack well, but because this idea is foundationally important to establish before we get to answering our question, we're going to unpack it a little bit, and it's got two parts. Scripture teaches, one, that God actively preserves his creation and that he works within it to accomplish his will. Two parts. First is this, God actively preserves his creation. Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. This word upholds is used in the New Testament a number of times to describe physically holding or carrying something from one place to another. It's used when a paralyzed man was brought to Jesus. It's used in John 2 when wine was brought by the party planner. It's used when Paul wanted his books and his coat to be brought to him in 2 Timothy 4. This idea here in Hebrews 1.3 is that Christ upholds, and it does not just mean simply to like sustain, like to keep something alive, like the old watchmaker, clockmaker universe idea, like deistically God set it up and just let it run. This is much, much more than that. This idea here in Hebrews 1 has the idea that it's an active sense of powerful, purposeful control over the thing being carried or held up. And notice here in Hebrews 1 that it's in the present tense, as in, as we speak, Christ is upholding the universe actively, here and now, by the word of his power. Without it, we cease to exist. This kind, of, this kind of idea of, of it all being held together by God is throughout the scriptures. Colossians 1.17 says the same kind of thing. It says, in Christ, all things hold together. Meaning that if Christ stopped doing at this moment, <laughs> whatever it is that he does to uphold all things, we would stop to breathe. We would stop breathing. We would stop existing. We wouldn't be here. Nothing that we know as reality would exist. Paul says the same kind of thing in Acts 17, 28. Speaking of God, he says, in him, in God, we live, we move, and we have, like we literally, in him, we have our being. In Nehemiah, verse 6 of chapter 9, Ezra the priest says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all that is on it, the seas, all that are in them. And it says this, you, speaking of God, preserve all of them. In 2 Peter 3, 7, it says, the heavens and earth that now exist are being kept until the day of judgment. There's that idea of preserving there. We could go on and on and on and on with passage after passage after passage that speaks of God in those kinds of terms, that he preserves by the very existence and word of his power all that is. So obviously, according to the Bible, God has this sort of providential control, a divine power over his creation, listen, in ways that extend far beyond human understanding. Not only that, but it's important to understand the second part of what we've already proposed, that he works within creation to accomplish his will. In Ephesians 1, verse 11, 
Paul says that God works all things, look at this, according to the counsel of his will, his purpose. That word works there is the word energeo. It's the word from which we get energy. And it means here that God brings about or he energizes all things according to the counsel of his will to fit with his purposes. Notice it says that he works all things. Nothing in creation falls outside of his ultimate providential power. This is true of every part of creation. When it comes to inanimate creation, the things that we call natural occurrences, Scripture says that God causes them to happen. Psalm 148 says that fire and hail and snow and frost, stormy wind, they fulfill his command. Psalm 104 says that God causes the grass to grow and the food to come up from the ground. Job 38 speaks of how God directs and orchestrates all the stars in the heavens. When it comes to the animals, Scripture says, ultimately, it is God who feeds them all. Psalm 104 says, they look to him to give them their food. Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, Look at the birds of the air. Your heavenly Father feeds them. He says in Matthew 10, not one sparrow falls to the ground without the Father's will. When it comes to the nations and governments, Scripture says, Job 12, God makes nations great, and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Psalm 22 says, dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. In Acts 17, referring to the nations, Paul says that God has determined allotted periods and boundaries of their habitation. When it comes to humanity, Philippians 4 says, God will supply every need. Psalm 139 tells us, God plans our days before we are born. There are lots of passages in Scripture that talk like this. Galatians 1, Paul talking about how God had set him apart. He says, God set me apart before I was born. In Jeremiah 1, God tells him, before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Proverbs 20 tells us a man's steps are ordered by the Lord. Proverbs 16 says a, man mind, a man's mind plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Psalm 33 says God looks down on all the inhabitants of the earth, and he fashions the hearts of them all. Unlike us, the scriptures are not shy in teaching us that government comes from God, success and failure come from God, our talents and abilities are from God, our children are from Him, our food is from Him, our words, our steps, our movements, our hearts, our bodies, and everything else that we could possibly imagine that we call our own is ultimately not ours, but is under His providential care and control. Unlike us, the Scriptures are not shy in making clear who is God and who is not. Job himself says in Job chapter 12, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. To think and to act and to talk like we have 
any substantive power or control beyond the small scope of our tiny little human worlds that tempt us to pride is to misunderstand the clear teaching of Scripture over and over and over again that God alone is sovereign over creation in ways that dramatically exceed our ability to even begin to understand. Which is to say, and this is really important to understand before we move on, according to the counsel of God in the scriptures, God has greater power and higher purposes than we think. Not only that, according to the scripture, God has greater power and higher purposes than we think probable. And not only that, but according to the scriptures, God has greater power and higher purposes than we even think possible. So listen up, modern prideful American who is deceived by this worldly material control. Take this to heart. God's supernatural power and wisdom are on a plane we cannot possibly understand. This is important to understand before we get into the wrench that we're going to throw in the works now, (laughs) which is, uh, what about evil? What is the relationship between God and evil in the world? If God indeed does have ultimate power over the whole world, then it's natural to ask whether God actually is the originator and author of evil? Does he cause the evil actions that people do for which he holds them responsible? And if he does, is he then not also responsible for sin? We're going to approach our answer to this question of the relationship between God and evil in the world by reading through a number of passages in Scripture that most directly address the relationship between God and evil in the world. Before we do that, first, two quick things just need to be said. Number one, my goal every week when I preach is to do the best that I can to be more faithful to the Scriptures than to what makes any one of us feel good. Human-centered filters for interpreting the Scriptures are a recipe for an eternity apart from God. We do not tell it what it means. It tells us who we are. It interprets us. It tells us who God is and how he made the world. And it is my goal to be more faithful to the scriptures than to what makes us feel good. Number two, it's probably also worth saying (laughs) um, that the following part of today's message may be a little shocking or new to some of us. If you've never really studied this question about the relationship between God and evil, if you've not really studied this earnestly, and the reason that it may be a little bit new or or feels shocking to some of us is there are lots of passages in the Bible that affirm what we're going to say today, which is this. On the one hand, God is not responsible. He never directly does any evil. On the other hand, he does indirectly cause evil things to happen, as part of directing the world to accomplishing his will, which is a way of saying he is so powerful and so good, he can even undo bad. 
There are lots of passages in the Bible that affirm that on the one hand, while God is not responsible, nor does he directly do any evil, he does sometimes indirectly cause, think about that word cause, look it up in the dictionary later before you uh, malign me. He does sometimes indirectly cause evil things to happen as part of directing the world to accomplish his will. We'll make this argument in a number of ways. So let's look at some passages first that affirm this idea. One very clear example is uh, of God indirectly causing evil is the story of Joseph. In the story of Joseph, on the one hand, Scripture very clearly says Joseph's brothers were wrong in being jealous of him, of hating him, of wanting to kill him, of throwing him into the pit, of selling him into slavery. Duh, they were wrong, Scripture says. Yet later, Scripture reports Joseph as saying, God sent me before you to preserve life, as if what happened to him was part of God's plans. And then in Genesis 50, verse 20, a verse you should all try to remember. It's a very important, poignant statement of what God was doing in the world, what he was doing in Genesis, what he was doing in Joseph's life, and in the rest of the Bible, and even in Jesus. Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Notice that scripture both condemns the brother's sinful actions and makes the claim that God's providential control even of their evil actions as he directed them, nevertheless brought about his own good divine purposes. This is in lots of places in scripture, actually. In the story of the Exodus, just the next, uh, the next book of the Bible. The flight from Egypt where God uses Moses to deliver the people of God from slavery. It is said eight times that God hardens, hardens the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And here's the thing, every time God hardened his heart, another plague ravaged the people in the land. So what was God's purpose in hardening Pharaoh's heart, especially when it resulted in further destruction and death? Apparently there's more going on here than we see on the surface. In Romans 9, 17 and 18, Paul's reflecting on what happens in Exodus, and he quotes Exodus 9, 16. He says this in Romans 9, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, this is God speaking in Exodus 9, and he quotes it in Romans 9, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you. His hardening was part of his purpose of showing his power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Then Paul says in the very next verse, Verse, verse 18, so then he has mercy upon whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. Apparently the will of God is higher than ours and more aware than ours. Not only did God harden Pharaoh's heart, he hardened the hearts of the Egyptians as a part of ensuring that they would pursue Israel into the Red Sea. It says it right there in Exodus 14. God speaking, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them, after the Israelites, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, chariots, and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Psalm 105, verse 25, recounting this incident in Exodus, it says, God turned their hearts to hate his people. In the life of King David, 2 Samuel 24, Kind of complicated, but try to follow. Verse 1, it says this. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And look at this. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number 
Israel and Judah. In other words, take a census of them. See how many of them there were. In other words, go do that. But just a few verses later in uh, that same chapter, verse 10, it says that David acknowledges what God commanded him to do as sin. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But remember in verse 1 where it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So what this means is that God inciting David to sin was a means by which he brought punishment on the people of Israel. Not making it up, the scripture even interprets it. 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1 tells us that God used Satan to incite David. Apparently, God is big enough to have power over all evil in the world. Notice what's going on here in this. In order to bring about his purposes, God worked through evil to incite David to sin, but Scripture regards David as responsible for that sin and not God. We'll continue that not God part later on. We'll get there, don't worry. In the story of Job, in Job 1, verse 12, God gave Satan permission to harm Job's family and possessions. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then in the next few verses here, many tragedies befall Job. All of these are reported as coming through the evil actions of the local peoples, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, as well as through a windstorm. And yet in all this, Job sees beyond those secondary causes, perceives all that has happened through the eyes of faith as coming from the hand of God. When he says, Job 1.21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now notice, in the very next verse, the Bible is careful to note who is responsible for what here. Verse 22, in all of this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong, which he didn't deserve. This means, this means that to blame God for evil as if he were the primary cause and not through secondary agents that were influenced for his purposes. This means that to blame God for evil would have been sin, but it says Job does not do this. Scripture never does that either, and neither should we. There are lots of places like this where we have similar passages that speak of God being what we're calling here a secondary cause. That's sort of a philosophical uh, term. He's not the primary agent. He's a secondary cause um, that directs others, and they are responsible, not him. Don't ask me how that works, but that's what Scripture reports. So there are quite actually a few, quite a few other places that we come across where evil is used to bring about God's ultimate good purposes, and yet God is not considered culpable nor responsible. 1 Kings 22 says the Lord put a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. In Isaiah 10, God sent the wicked Assyrians to punish the people of God. And he says, the staff in your hands, wicked Assyrians, is my fury. In Jeremiah 25, he did the same thing with the Babylonians, sending them against Israel. He said, I will bring them against this land and the inhabitants. During a time of repentance, the Israelites cried to God and they said, Lord, why do you make us err from your ways? Why do you harden our hearts so that we do not fear you? Through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 45, God speaks and he says, I form light and I create darkness. 
I make well-being and I bring and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Lamentations 3 says, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? It may not feel right. You may not know these scriptures well, but we could go on and on. These passages aren't just some weird anomaly or exception that proves some other rule. These are passages in Scripture that must be meaningfully dealt with. There is something going on here, as we've said today, that shows that God has greater power and higher purposes than we think possible. Somehow God's perfect holiness and wisdom and power mean that He alone can righteously bring about all of the events that happen in the world to discipline his children, to lead unbelievers to repentance, to bring judgment on hardened sinners. And yet, Scripture reports, in all of those things, the Bible never once charges God with wrongdoing or being responsible for evil as a primary cause. So, what conclusions can we draw? Briefly, there are six things I think we need to, uh, to come to terms with here. The first is this. God uses all things to fulfill his purposes and even uses evil for his glory and for our good. Just think about this logically for a moment. I'll say this twice. I'll go slowly. Listen carefully. If someday... God actually does what he promises in Scripture to redeem creation, to restore heaven, then by necessity, every single thing that will have ever happened in history, whether good or evil, will have been part of what he used to accomplish his ultimate plan. If God actually does what he promises in Scripture to redeem creation, to restore heaven, then by necessity, every single thing that will have ever happened in all creation for all history, whether we call it good or evil, it will have been part of what he used to accomplish his ultimate plan. Don't ask me how it works. I just think that's what Scripture says. Somehow God uses all things to fulfill his purposes and even uses evil for his glory and for our good. Which is what we mean when we say that God can do what we cannot. He can redeem bad for good. He can redeem evil for his good purposes and even for our instruction and growth and good purposes. What this means is that we can take Romans 8:28 to heart. Believing that even when we experience evil and suffering, we can have the deeper assurance that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. This is the kind of deep trust and conviction that mature followers of Jesus know personally. that they trust God's greater power and higher purposes, the kind of greater power and higher purposes that enabled Joseph to say to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It means we can say the same thing. Second thing is, uh, 
Nevertheless, God never does evil and is never to be blamed for evil. He himself never does evil as what we call a primary cause. And he is never to be blamed for evil. James 1, 13 to 14 say it this way. Lots of scriptures do, but here's one. Uh, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, duh. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This verse makes clear, these two verses make clear, we should never think of God as responsible nor accountable for temptation to sin. Thirdly, God rightfully blames and judges moral creatures for the evil they do. Passages all over the scriptures affirm this idea. Isaiah 66, 3 and 4 say it like this. These, those who have rebelled against the Lord, which is all people, these have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them. This is Isaiah talking as if God were talking through him. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. In passage after passage after passage throughout the Bible, the blame for evil is always on the person or the demon who does the evil. And listen, God alone is righteous and just to punish for sin. God alone is righteous and just to punish for sin. In every case where we do evil, we willingly choose it and are rightly blamed for it. Fourth, evil is real. It's not an illusion, and we should never do evil because it will always harm us and others. Scripture consistently teaches that evil is real, Because it comes with consequences that are eternal. It says that we should never do evil. And it calls us to fight against it in ourselves and in others and in the world around us. Jesus says in Matthew 6, we are to pray, deliver us from evil. It says in 1 Peter 2 that we are to wage war against our souls. And if we see anyone else doing wrong, we should attempt to bring him back. James 5, 19 and 20 say it this way, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. (laughs) Number five, in the end, we have to admit that we do not understand, key word here, how. We do not understand how it is that God can ordain that we carry out evil deeds and yet he can hold us accountable for them and not be blamed himself. Which is to say, we can recognize that all the things that we've affirmed so far today are true because Scripture teaches them. But, in the end, Scripture does not tell us how God brings these situations about or how it is that he can hold us accountable for what he ordains to come to pass. Those details are apparently beyond us. Scripture is ultimately silent because, again, his greater power and his higher purposes are beyond our comprehension or our need to know. And then finally, number six. I think this is important to understand. The alternative to God's ultimate power and control, even over evil, meaning this is not God and this is not, this is not God and Satan. It's God who has ultimate power and control over all things. We don't want it this way, believe me. 
Many of us act and talk and think like this is how it is, like there's some battle that God may not win. The alternative to God's ultimate power and control over evil, redeemed for his purposes, is in fact a purposeless evil that is a far less helpful solution than what Scripture tells us. Meaning without God's providential hand, a random chance, purposeless evil over which God has no power and control is not a helpful solution because it means there is evil over which God has no ultimate power or control as if he couldn't stop it or redeem it. Scripture teaches in a few places that even now he is restraining evil. Friends, a world of purposeless evil would lead us to conclude that God is not good, that he is not righteous, and that he is not powerful. That would make it hard for us to affirm Romans 8, 28, where it says all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Friends, here's what we know from the scriptures. God is altogether good and holy and powerful and wise and just. And not one of us is in a position to accurately assess his justice, which is why we have to assess his goodness and his power and his love. And while we ourselves are experiencing suffering and pain, the idea that we can trust God has larger purposes in mind for his glory and our good, even while we experience that suffering and pain, that is meaningful, purposeful suffering that has a larger purpose than we can understand. Think about, think about this. <laughs> the most evil deed in all of history was the crucifixion of Jesus. And Scripture even teaches that it was ordained by God. Not just the fact of the crucifixion, but the things that led up to and made the crucifixion happen. All the individual connections with it. The church at Jerusalem actually prayed and recognized this very thing when they prayed in Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant, they were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. In the crucifixion of Jesus, not only did God show that he can do what no one else can, that he can bring about good even from evil, but he showed that he himself experienced, friends, all of the weight of all of our suffering and pain in ways that we cannot possibly deal with, which means, friends, in God's economy, in his wisdom, in his kingdom, in his accounting for things that we can't possibly fathom. The truth is that not only does the crucifixion, him being with us in our suffering and pain for us, not only does that not diminish our suffering and pain, it heightens his goodness and his glory, and it means that you can trust him with what you cannot handle yourself, which is the weight of your sin. He has greater power and higher purposes than anything we can understand, and that's a good thing because it means that he can accomplish for us a salvation wrought for us in the person of Jesus, whose perfect sinless life lived for us 
counted as righteous for us before God because we were condemned before him and we deserved his wrath and anger. But because he died for us, he gave us the possibility of eternal life if we would just accept the free gift of his grace. Let's pray, friends. Father, thank you for handling on our behalf what we couldn't possibly for ourselves. We acknowledge, as you teach us in your word, that you are wiser, that you are more powerful, that you are good beyond our understanding, and that you can use things we don't understand for your greater purposes. And so we trust you with those things, Lord. We trust you with our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would, through your spirit, continue to confirm in us the truth that you can be trusted, that you alone can handle the weight of our sin. Forgive us, Lord, for acting and talking, for using the resources of our life as if we could take care of our sin ourselves. Forgive us, Lord, for that selfish pride. We ask, Lord, that in the quiet of this moment, we would hand over that pride to you, accepting that you alone give us mercy and grace that we could never earn and that we didn't deserve. Lord, that's amazing truth, and we love you for it. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.